Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John, the sixth chapter. As you're finding your place there, let me make a few introductory remarks. When a child is overindulged with gifts by his or her parent, the law of diminishing returns soon sets in. We, as adults, when we are showered with presents, we tend to take them for granted. The more gifts we receive, the less joy we find in their reception. Our appreciation quickly turns into indifference toward our parents' generosity to us. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves slipping into a sense of entitlement rather than a sense of gratitude for the gifts which we receive. Now, perhaps you've noticed in the Gospels, Jesus addresses God as His Father. He is His Heavenly Father. We know that Jesus is not a created being. He has been with the Father from the beginning. But in the relationship that He enjoys within the context of the Trinity, Jesus is a Son to the Father. And He knows His Father is the ultimate gift giver. This is expressed by Jesus in His conversation with Nicodemus found in John chapter 3, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, speaking of Himself, of course, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What an incredible gift. The ultimate gift, which has been given to mankind, is the person of Jesus. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says that we have been saved by faith through grace, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What an incredible gift giver the Father is. The gift He's given us, the ultimate gift, is the gift of His Son, and in His Son, eternal life. But Jesus has received some gifts as well. And unlike us, Jesus never takes those gifts for granted. Let's read about it in the book of John, chapter 6, beginning with verse 37, and we will read through verse 47. John 6, 37, Jesus speaks, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about Him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will come, I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now, this text has two major emphases. The first of which is, Jesus has received gifts from the Father. And we are those gifts. We are God the Father's gifts to Jesus the Son. That's amazing. Secondly, that the Father has given Jesus to us as our guardian. Now, let's begin with the first idea that's given to us by Jesus in this passage. We are Father's gifts to Jesus. Jesus never grows tired of receiving the gifts whom the Father has given to Him. Unlike us, we become indifferent sometimes and ungrateful for the gifts which we receive, even from God. Not to mention from other people in our lives, but not so Jesus. Look at verse 37, the first part. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. There's a certainty in that statement which Jesus makes. And he goes on to say in the latter part of that verse, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now allow me to pause for just a moment. Remember the setting of this teaching of Jesus. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. An incredible miracle has occurred. The people expectedly would rise up and want to make him king. And as one translator says, one interpreter says, he says that these people were following Jesus for the loaves rather than for the love of Jesus. And Jesus detected that. And Jesus was not willing to follow the dictates of their desires. He did not make himself king. He knew his kingdom is not of this world. So, Jesus is described here as one who sees people, as we will see later in the Gospel of John, people, those people whom he fed, who had wanted to make him king, all of a sudden they turned sour on Jesus and they began to leave. By the droves they left. And the implication of the Gospel of John is that Jesus was left just with that little group of apostles who were his disciples as well. And they were bummed, I'm talking about the disciples, because they were enjoying the adulation Jesus was receiving from the crowd because they were close to Him. And when Jesus got praise, they got some of the overflow of that praise in their own lives. And what we see about Jesus here, He has God's perspective and we need it too. We especially who are leaders in the church. So many churches are statistically driven. It's about how many people do you have on Sunday? How many people do you have at this event and that event? How many people are being baptized? How many people are in Bible studies, etc., etc.? Now, please understand, we were blessed to see this family baptized this morning, weren't we? Praise the Lord. It was wonderful to hear their testimony. 
In the earlier worship service, we had the privilege of seeing others baptized as believers in Jesus. Fantastic. Last evening, we saw two people baptized as believers in Jesus. We love it when we see people come to Christ. But Jesus was confident. We see it in what He says here in verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This was Jesus' viewpoint, and it's correct, obviously. It was, if the Father has equipped me and called me and commissioned me to be the bringer of the good news of the gospel, then he will be sure to bring people under the hearing of this message, under my influence, and they will become my disciples. He needed to be reminded of that in his humanity because of this rapid evaporation of all this vast number of people who were clamoring for his being king. But they had it all wrong. So we see Jesus thinking about us as his gifts. He was thinking about you and me, actually, believe it or not. And all those in between us and these first disciples of Jesus, whom we know as apostles. He never tired of receiving gifts from the Father. He doesn't to this day. He tells a parable in Luke chapter 15. You may remember the parable. It's the parable of a shepherd who comes home after grazing his sheep all day. He brings the sheep to a sheep pen and he begins to count them. One, two. He gets to 99 and that's the end of the sheep. He knows he owns 100. In the morning, he left with 100. He had counted 100 the evening before and he begins to count again. And he wants to be sure he's not miscalculating and he comes up with the same number. And so what does he do? He leaves the 99 and he goes to look for the one sheep which is lost. And he searches for that sheep until he finds the sheep and he brings the sheep home. And there's great celebration, not only in his own household, but the entire village celebrates that this lost sheep has been found. And then Jesus makes the application. He says there is more joy in heaven when one lost sinner repents and comes home, than when 99 righteous stay at home. In that, we see the shepherd heart of God the Father. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. You know the 23rd Psalm. Our Lord Jesus is the good shepherd, and He seeks the sheep. And when the Father gives Him sheep, He rejoices. Incredibly, He rejoices at the reception of those sheep. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, listen, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ endured the agony and the incredible humiliation of the cross. It began really in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke, the only Gentile writer of New Testament writings. Luke, a physician, one whom Paul called the beloved physician. Luke was fascinated 
when he heard someone, when he was researching to write the Gospel of Luke. He was a meticulous historian. He was a man given to detail. And he tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, under the incredible stress of that moment, Jesus sweat what looked like great drops of blood. There is a medical condition that is known among doctors. It's a rare condition. It's called hematidrosis. It's the condition which occurs when a person is under such incredible stress that the capillaries in the face region will burst and blood will actually flow out like sweat. Jesus was experiencing in that moment the great pressure of understanding what His destiny was. His destiny was to go to an old rugged cross, hanged on a tree, a sign according to the law of Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, that that person was cursed by God and to suffer the humiliation of being crucified as the sacrifice for our sin, naked before the world. He went and He willingly surrendered His life for us. Paul wrote about it this way, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So, we see Jesus on the cross dying for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. What happened to be the joy which was set before Jesus on the cross? You, if you are one of His sheep, and I, if I'm one of His sheep. He anticipated the Father giving those to Him as a result of His sacrifice for us. We are the Father's gifts to Jesus. And Jesus is the Father's guardian of us. Because the last part of verse 37, Jesus says, The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You and I cannot appreciate the language which Jesus used and which is translated the way in which it's translated in our New Testaments. He used the possible, strongest possible negative available to him when he said, I will in no way cast them out. Jesus is not going to discard you. Once you have been given by the Father to him, he will never cast you out. It's impossible. He's promised he will never cast you and me out. The Father's commissioned Jesus to protect all whom the Father has given to Jesus. Some of you are fans of Thor. I'm talking about the trilogy of movies, the Marvel character Thor. And if you are, you may have some recollection of a figure. You may not have remembered his name. I didn't remember his name. I had to look it up for this illustration. Heimdall is his name. He positions himself at the entrance to Asgard. Asgard is one of the nine worlds in Norse mythology. And he is there to serve as a guardian. He's an all-seeing, all-knowing individual. And he keeps constant vigilance over the entryway through the bridge Bifrost into this mythological world of Asgard. 
Well, he's a good guardian, and it's an interesting story, but it's not true. Jesus is the one whom Paul speaks of in the book of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. This is what Jesus says. The Lord will protect you, you if you know Jesus Christ. He will protect you against the evil one. You see, the evil one, namely Satan or the devil, he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's his interest to dislodge us from this position of safety, which is ours in Christ. But he cannot do that. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now take careful note of what the will of the Father was and is for Jesus. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing. He loses nothing. Every effort that Satan might muster to try to pry you loose from the hand of God, it's incapable of accomplishing its purpose. Because not only... Will Jesus not cast you away once you've come into His possession as a gift from the Father to the Son? Not only is that true, but also no effort made by anyone, including yourself, by the way. There are those who say, well, yeah, you can't be afraid of the devil taking you away, but you can get yourself out of the hand of the Lord. I'm sorry. It's not true. It's not in the Bible. There's no place you can find it. But he says the Father's commission is not only that He protect us, but He will rise, raise us up rather on the last day. He makes that statement twice more in this section of Scripture which we're looking at today. You know, this kind of talk doesn't set well with religious people. It didn't set well with a group of people who are mentioned here in verse 41. Look at it. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him. And they didn't just grumble once. They were grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. We know that by the tense of the verb, which Jesus is described as overhearing. Because Jesus said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? What they were saying is, We know this guy. We know his father was Joseph, his mother Mary. We know where he comes from. He comes from Nazareth. Now, do you recall in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, the Bible says Jesus purposed to go forth and he found Philip and called Philip to follow him. And what did Philip do immediately? He searched for his friend Nathanael. And he said to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets have prophesied. We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And then what does Nathanael rather smugly say in reply? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They were saying, this is just a commoner. He hasn't even been to rabbinical school. This man has no knowledge of what he's saying. He's out of his mind. 
He says He's come down out of heaven. And therein lies a real concern for them because they knew if it was true that He came down out of heaven, or at least in Jesus' mind, that's the way Jesus saw it, that Jesus was equating Himself with God. And if they thought that, they were exactly right. Because the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is equal with the Father. And He came down to be one of us. It was necessary that that happen. And that didn't sit well with these people. Look at verse 45 for a moment. It says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then back up to 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is really the sticking point for these people, I believe. More than the fact that he was just a commoner from, of all places, Nazareth. Despite the fact that he was deluded, thinking that he was God because he had come down out of heaven. Those things were concerns. But nothing like this because this struck at the heart of the religion of these so-called Jews. Let me pause before I forget. The Jews is not a description of all the inhabitants of Israel who were descendants of Abraham. No. It was a select group of people who saw themselves as being more pious, being more superior than anybody else to all the other people, not just in Israel, not just the descendants of Abraham, but in the whole world. And they were made up of an interesting coalition of Pharisees and scribes. Those people were people who were laymen. Pharisees were lay people. They didn't get their living from their exercise of religious duty. But they were people who were sticklers for the Word of God. They were fundamentalists. They believed in the miraculous elements in what we would call the Old Testament. They were people who could quote virtually any verse from the Old Testament. At the drop of a dime, they could do it. And then there were Sadducees. These were from the high priestly family. And these Sadducees didn't even believe in the miraculous at all. They didn't even believe there was going to be a judgment day. There would be no resurrection from the dead, as the Pharisees believed. So you had these conservative religionists, and you had liberal religionists, and they came together to seek to destroy Jesus. Now, religion, whether it's liberal or conservative or moderate, doesn't cut it with God. These people were bothered when... Jesus says, listen to this, no one comes to the Father except through whom? Through Jesus. And they had their own equation of how a person gets to know God and goes to heaven. Here's the equation. The equation is, my works, and that would have included keeping all the traditions of people who had preceded them, including the Old Testament, My works plus my faith in God equals salvation. But Jesus blew that theory out of the water completely when He says, no one comes to the Father except through Me. There's only one way to God the Father, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 26 of John 6. 
Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, and because you saw signs, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do? They were following the prevailing thinking of the day. What shall we do? You see, they thought they had to do something to inherit eternal life, that we may work the works of God. I guarantee you, a person who is interested in going to heaven and believes there are certain things you must do to get there, those people are scrounging around for every hint as to how you might ensure your eternity with God in heaven. But look what Jesus says in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. There it is. Belief in Jesus Christ alone. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Have you seen Jesus Christ? I have not seen Jesus with my eyes. And Jesus pronounces a special blessing upon people who have not seen Him, yet have believed. He's talking about seeing Him physically. But what happens to us when we come to hear Christ's call in our lives? First of all, the Father has to choose to reveal Him to us. Isn't that what we read from Matthew 11, 25? Jesus says, I praise Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and You have revealed them to babes. Because it was well-pleasing to you, Father, that you do that. No one knows the Son, speaking of Himself, except you, Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those whom the Son, now this is mind-blowing, wills to reveal the Father to. It's the grace of God through and through that you know God through Jesus if you do. Because you're blind. In fact, even worse, you are dead when you were born. You were dead in trespasses and sin. That's what the Bible says. Before you receive Christ. And all of a sudden, what the Holy Spirit does, He comes and He removes the blinders from your eyes. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the minds of unbelievers are blinded. By the God of this age. Who might that be? Satan. But in His grace, the Lord comes. And He lifts the veil. And all of a sudden, the lights come on. Not with our physical eyes, but in our hearts. The prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians is appropriate for us. He prayed that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. We need light. And the One who gives us that light is God the Father. He reveals the Son to us. And then the Son turns the, returns the favor to the Father and He reveals the Father. And the Spirit of God's at work in this as well. Let's go back to our passage once more. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Basically, He says, Shut up. That's not a nice way to discuss for us to speak to people. That's really what He's saying. Stop it, he says. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. The word which is chosen by Jesus, draws, is used in James chapter 2, verse 6, to describe how some poor people were being dragged away against their will to a court of law. So, what Jesus would be saying here, there are some people, this was not the case in my life, when the Father revealed the Son to me and the Son revealed the Father to me, I wanted to know Jesus. I I didn't come kicking and screaming as some people come into the kingdom of God. If you know the name C.S. Lewis in his autobiography, his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he talks about how he migrated from being an atheist. He was a professor of literature at Oxford, later at Cambridge. He was an atheist. Then he became an agnostic. And then as an adult, he became a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. He put his trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. The Scripture says, Jesus says it here and elsewhere in the Gospel of John and even in the other Gospels, that if we put our trust in Jesus Christ alone, we will be saved. In this phrase, believing in, believing in, we see it over and over again. And really that doesn't capture the idea of what Jesus is saying. It's the phrase literally translated as believing into Him. We have to believe into Him. The only thing that gets you in heaven is believing into what Jesus has done for you. Denying yourself, coming to the point where you give up on your own efforts at religion. And you exchange your own fruitless efforts to save yourself for the obviously fruitful work of Christ on the cross. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. He's talking about himself. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus has borne incredible fruit. And that fruit is to be found in our lives. And we trust in Jesus Christ alone. God anticipating the coming of Christ hundreds of years prior in the 6th century B.C. He says, I will remove from you your heart of stone. Your dead, cold heart. And I will put in you a heart of flesh, meaning a heart that's alive. Talking about a spiritual heart. I will put my spirit in you and I will animate you. I will make you alive. I will give you the power to do what you've been trying to do in your religious efforts. I will give you the power to obey me. And by the Spirit is the only way anyone could ever hope to obey the Lord. So this great statement, 44, it's really a companion verse to 37. Let's read 37 again. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. How do I get to Jesus? The Father gives me as a gift to Jesus. And then, when I do come to the Lord Jesus, who has drawn me to Him? Is it all of a sudden I get a... Uh, An itch to know Jesus? No. The Father begins to illuminate us. And He begins to reveal Jesus to us. And we behold Him. We see Him. And we believe in Him. We trust in Him. This is not easy believism, by the way. This is not cheap grace. This is yielding your life fully to Jesus. Going back to Matthew 11, Jesus says, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. That means submit to me and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Gospel. We trust in what Christ has done for us in His crucifixion and resurrection. We believe in Him, simply placing our faith in Him. Not anymore trusting ourselves for anything, especially religion, to get us right with God. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you, sound familiar, by my loving kindness. Paul echoes that last line in Romans 2.4. He says, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Do you know there are people in this room today who view God wrongly? They view God as sitting without any real interest in us as human beings at all. They view God as one who sits on His throne and gleefully anticipates the death of people who do not know Him so He can consign them to an eternal hell. Hell is real. It's where the unabated wrath of God is experienced in people's lives. It's everlasting destruction according to what is written in the book of 2 Thessalonians. Those two words don't even fit together. Destruction is gone, right? Everlasting. How can something be everlasting destruction? It's because it's an eternity. It lasts forever. So don't mishear what I'm saying. When I say what God says in Ezekiel chapter 18, He says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent, he says, and live. This is his heart, that you and I would repent of our sin and we receive life in the person of Jesus Christ as we trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus, in a sense, sounds like a broken record here. But He's wanting to hammer home the importance of our understanding that we hear and learn from the Father. The Father's our teacher. He speaks to us by the Spirit. We hear, but we don't simply hear. The word learned is the verb from which the word disciple is taken in the New Testament. So the idea is we live in a relationship of discipleship. We're always in school with the Father. He's always teaching us. And consequently, we're always following Him. And we come to Him because He has spoken to us. Verse 46, Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who's from God. He has seen the Father. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained us. We encountered that in the first chapter of John. Those are true words. Let me mention, by way of quotation, two things written by men whose lives and writings have influenced me, even though I've not met either man. The first is A.W. Tozer. 
in his book, The Pursuit of God, which is a classic. Do yourself a favor. Get a copy of this thin volume and read it and be drawn ever closer to your God. He says, we pursue God because and only because God has first put an urge within us that spurs us to that pursuit. Well said, Brother Tozer. And then John Piper, our contemporary, says, Coming to Jesus as the treasure and pleasure of our lives is granted by the Father or it does not happen. It makes perfectly good sense when we see what the Bible says about us before we come to Christ. We're dead. And dead men can't do anything except decompose. Verse 65, look at it. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but here we overhear Jesus saying much what He's already said here. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. Wow! Amazing! What a blessing! If we have come to Jesus, and I would hope that most of you in here have come to Jesus, If we have come to Jesus, it's because the Father granted it. And He gave us to the Son so that Jesus would lose not anything about us and that we would be safe in time and eternity in the hand of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, in his last book, which he wrote, it's agreed, 2 Timothy, He says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He's able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. What had He committed? The word translated committed really was a banking term. It's the idea of I've made a deposit in His bank in the hand of Jesus. And I know He's going to keep it for that day. What day is that? mentioning. The day when He will raise us up and we will stand with all of humanity throughout all of history. We will stand before the Lord. And if we are His sheep, He will say, well done. You will receive your reward. If we are not, the outcome is very grim. Has the Lord begun to speak to you today, maybe for the first time? I wonder. I have to believe there's probably at least one person who is in that position today. The Lord has begun to reveal to you it's not about your religion. It's about your surrender. You're taking your hands off of your life and trusting Jesus and moving toward Jesus and saying, Oh, Lord Jesus... I want to believe in You. Help my unbelief. And Jesus says, because You are coming to Me with a desire to know Me, it's the Father moving You toward Me. And by all means, I receive You as a gift from the Father. And I will never throw You away. What a marvelous Gospel. And you're asking, are you telling me, Mike, that I can know for sure that I have eternal life. It's not my telling you. This text should affirm that. But let me mention one more thing 
that John writes. In 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe into the name of Jesus, the Son, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope you have eternal life, or maybe think you have eternal life, but you have some reservation as to whether you're correct, that you may know. And right before that, he said, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Do you have the life? Do you have eternal life? Do you have Jesus who is the life? He is speaking to you today. Would you bow your head? He's saying to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. Do you want to pray that prayer to the Lord today? Your heart's pounding. You're not sure if you're ready to make such a commitment. Why not? He's the one who has the words of eternal life. You'll find no fulfillment anywhere else, no purpose that transcends yourself and time except in trusting Jesus alone. Would you pray to Jesus right now? in your heart, in your own way, say, Jesus, come and take me. I don't deserve you. I don't deserve forgiveness, but I want to receive you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.